Forrester showed, well, there are things you can do to prevent yourself from getting hit by a car. He saw himself as being on the bicyclist's side. It's kind of a lonely world to be in transportation advocacy. Uh, very often, your efforts don't go very far. So to see such a huge win, I get shivers just thinking about it. What's happened is now when somebody driving a car actually comes down the street, they're actually forced to stop and slow down for all the people in the street. And I think people are starting to realize that we don't have to have cars speeding at unsafe speeds through our streets. There's this revelation, I think, happening amongst a lot of residents where they're going, oh, wait a minute, there's 62 feet of space on the street for cars and parking and like four for me. And I'm hoping that that revelation kind of opens people's eyes a little bit to what I started seeing. And now I literally can't go back to not seeing it anymore. There can be a different way to yeah, live and move around your community that isn't so impacted by the car infrastructure. All right, welcome to Bike Talk. KPFK on the live stream. My name is Don Ward and we have Nick Richard, our co-host. And today on the show, we have the famous, the legend, the vehicular cycling legend, John S. Allen. He's got a blog, he's put out publications and he's done videos and he's done a lot for the cycling movement over the years. And uh, as an LCI myself, we refer to his book, Bicycling Street Smarts, um, Riding Confidently, Legally, and Safely. And it's a book that helps you learn how to ride correctly in traffic. And it's a very important book that we use to teach uh, Traffic Skills 101. Um, John is certified in both Cycling Savvy and as a league certified instructor for the Smart Cycling Program by the League of American Bicyclists. Um, John, thanks for being on our show. Well, you're welcome. I'm, I'm privileged to be on the show. And I didn't even get to one, like a, even just a small fraction of the things you've done. Um, we should talk a little bit more about your background. And you're here to um, officially discuss uh, John Forrester who recently passed away. So we want to we wanna talk about John, but first let's talk a little bit about your background and tell us a little bit more about yourself. Well, let's see. I'm, I'm one of the old white bearded guys that you hear about. I'm not as old as John was, but um, I've been riding a bicycle since 1953 when I was seven years old. I have a photo my father took of me with the kickstand down on my huffy bike, the first one I ever had, because I couldn't balance it yet. 70, 77, 78 was the big aha moment. That is when I walked into the bicycle exchange in Cambridge in Harvard Square, a very famous store, no longer exists there. And I bought a copy of John Forrester's book, Effective Cycling. Um, up to that point, I had been fatalistic about riding my bicycle. I, you know, I was going to do it because, hey, it was a good thing to do, but there was nothing I could do about preventing myself from getting hit by a car. And Forrester showed, well, there are things you can do to prevent yourself from getting hit by a car. And in two weeks, my whole style of riding completely changed. It was astonishing. 
uh, I, I've been riding through the worst intersection in Boston and going all the way over to the right, to the right of the right turn lane. The cars cut me off and cut me off. And what Forrester told me to do was, hey, ride in the lane that goes where you're supposed to go or that's, you know, where you're supposed to be to go there. And I did that. It was like, you know, Moses and Aaron parting the waters and, and the cars on one side go to the right, the cars on the other side go to the left. Um, and I'm in the line that goes straight and wow, this works. Uh, so that, that was the aha moment. Um, from that, I, I became involved in the Boston Area Bicycle Coalition, uh, which, was, which it was and now is now Mass Bike Advocacy Organization. Um, I became an instructor in 82 in the uh, Effective Cycling Program. Um, and I wrote the book, The Complete Book of Bicycle Commuting. I happened to, you know, I was writing. I, I was writing for Bicycling Magazine, and, and they, they got me on to write the book. Uh, Street Smarts now is actually excerpts from that book, although it's been uh, very much revised since. Um, when did you first meet Forrester? You didn't meet him right away, right? You, you heard about him no, before you... you you know, I've only met him in person about five to seven times. Mm -hmm. Those times were memorable. Um, some of them were were fun. Some of them were, I thought he embarrassed himself. Uh, really? Mostly, I, yeah. Oh, well, I remember him standing up in, in Pro Bike Northwest in 1991, I think it was. Yeah, it was 91. Um, and disputing what the, the the speaker who was from world watch or some some pl such place was was saying and he he was essentially right and and she was wrong but this is what forrester always did that got some people to hate him which is that he he never knew how to be diplomatic and persuasive and get people to you know look at the politics of a situation and move opinions in a way that was effective. He'd always just come right out and say what he thought. And in, in, often in situations where that just didn't work. So people who, who agreed with him said, wow, yeah, you're right. And people who disagreed with him really uh, developed a vehement, um, even dislike and hatred of him and rejected his ideas along with his aggressiveness, nastiness, grumpiness. You know, when I think about Forrester and the bicycling movement and the, the sort of two columns that exist where there are people that want infrastructure that is specific for bicycles, and then there are people like Forrester who say that bicycles belong on the, on the road as vehicles. Um, I think that, you know, For Forrester was, was, you know, the, the, the way that Forrester saw things, it's like, he was recommending what should be done for conditions that exist. Mm -hmm. And I totally agree with that. Like, you know, when I ride bicycles in Los Angeles, I'm somebody that wants infrastructure 
And but I ride bicycles in Los Angeles in the vehicular manner because I have to, you know, because well, that is he is right. It's the safest way to ride when you have no specific infrastructure, in my opinion. Well, there, there's another issue. There, there are a couple other issues there. One was he was always he always he saw himself as being on the bicyclist side. And he was also uh, battling against a lot of people who would who would do things supposedly for bicyclists that, oh, this will make you safe. We'll put you on the sidewalk. I mean, there's this famous right. thing where he he experimented with riding on the sidewalk and and determined that you could not ride at a normal speed. Uh, driveways and intersections were were dangerous. Uh, he also. He went legalistic on a few issues like um, rearview mirrors, hand signals, um, and taillights. He, he, for a long time, really deprecated taillights. He said, well, rear reflector is enough. Now, if you look at the political situation there, um, as a practical matter, bicyclists should be okay with a a reflector, but having a taillight is safer because sometimes people's headlights in their cars aren't working right. Um, yeah, absolutely. You know, that, there are a few other reasons. Um, so from my point of view, as someone who's strongly um, supportive of riding on the road, um, Forrester sometimes ended up being as far out in, in left field as some infrastructure people are in right field. I mean, there's a lot of infrastructure that gets put up there that is supposed to be good for us, but that doesn't really work. I think a reasonable position is that there's, there is good infrastructure and we should support that, but that, that we really have to keep an eye out for the door zone bike lanes and the you know, so-called protected bike lane where you can't see the car till it's about to hit you and, and that kind of thing. Uh, right, yeah, right. You know, we have some very nice rail trails in the Boston area, and that's fine, except now they're crowded with people who could be infected. So I don't ride on them now. But on the other hand, the roads are nearly empty. I just and on that same, the same token, the, uh, the bike uh, paths that we have here, a lot of them are tucked away in sort of dark areas and can be dangerous at night. Oh yeah, um, you know, as far as Los yeah. Angeles is concerned. Yeah, well, um, the the only places I was uh, anyone ever attempted to mug me was off road, never on a road. Um, so, um, yeah, that's that's another issue. Uh, so there 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 are these issues with infrastructure, and you have to look at them squarely and say, okay, is this going to be a good project? Um, does it does it get people where they need to go? I mean, I'm super in favor of paths to connect um, loop and lollipop residential neighborhoods so you can get from one place to another without having to go out on the main arterial. Um, that's that's a big, long struggle. But then you have all these local streets and people are going to have to ride um, as bicycle drivers, that's what the words we use now, the vehicular has too much of a forest or tint to it or tinge to it. 
So we call it bicycle <laughs> driving. But in, you know, in your, in your neighborhood, um, on the neighborhood streets, you got to ride the way Forrester showed, or, or you're just not going to do it in the safest way. But but also, you know, if you if you do need to go out on the arterials and cycling savvy is especially strong on this, we show you how to do it in the in the safest way you can. Uh, one other thing I should say about myself, I, I didn't say this. I started using a rear view mirror a year before I read Effective Cycling. And that was very interesting because it actually showed me that being assertive worked. If I couldn't see what's behind me, uh, all I had was fatalism and fear that someone's going to hit me, but I, I couldn't see. Look in the mirror, see that I've, you know, I've signaled that I'm merging into the lane, the car behind me slowed down. You know, that's two-way communication. That's what it's all about for me. And that sort of builds on what Forrester did, but um, Forrester deprecated mirrors because he, along with taillights, because he thought, well, if, if he was in favor of them, then um, it might be made the law that you have to use them and some bicyclist gets um, hauled up in, in court after a crash and doesn't, doesn't uh, uh, collect on the driver's insurance because of not using required equipment. So that was his legalistic side. I mean, that's that's the side where he was, you know, more libertarian than I am by far. Mm. Um, uh, you know, I use I already had a mirror. And when I started using Forrester's techniques, the mirror was what showed me that they worked. But, you know, he was so you know, stuck in his ways in some some ways about gearing, too. I mean, it's. He was touting half-step gearing when everything had gone over to, to um, uh, multi-range gearing. Half-step gearing? I don't think I've ever heard of that. Oh, well, Is look that... it up on SheldonBrown.com. That's one of the... Look at the okay. That's <laughs> one of the things. That's, it's one way to arrange the uh, sprockets on your bike for a shifting uh, sequence. I won't... T I won't bother with you you with the sure um what other questions did you have about Forrester while we're you know, we still got seven minutes here well uh you know the i i could only speak from personal sort of back and forth with uh bicycle drivers or you know we call them vehicular cyclists Either way, it's, it's just this sort of tug of war. The view that I had in terms of mirrors, and I don't use mirrors, but I'm always looking over my shoulder, and I've, I've actually been hit from behind while riding vehicular at night. And I was always sort of pushing vehicular cyclists to talk more about riding at night. And I don't feel like I've really gotten those kind of answers and I'm curious how Forrester addressed riding at night. You know, well, he, I, I would, I mean, I, I agree that you shouldn't be required 
I, I agree with his thinking that you shouldn't, you know, be required to have a rear light, although a rear light seems to be a well, you important. Well, I'd you say know? that has really changed because bicycle lighting equipment has become so incredibly uh, more practical and um, inexpensive and, and reliable than it was back in the 70s. I mean, the LEDs mm -hmm. have just worked a total revolution in bicycle lighting. So right. I think it's reasonable and reasonable. Well, for me, as a, an, a dedicated an ad, an avid cyclist who works on my bikes and keeps them up, it was reasonable for me to use a headlight and taillight both um, from from when I started riding in Boston, right on. Um, I mean, my first first bike so equipped was a Raleigh Sports with a Dynahub hub generator. Great bike, just you know, bomb proof. Um, and the lights were were reliable, but most people didn't have that. They'd have a battery light, and the battery would last for an hour, and then it would go dead and it wasn't rechargeable, and the light wasn't very bright. So it was about the, as much as Forrester could reasonably ask in terms of that technical and political situation to, to require bicyclists to have a headlight. And then he said, well, look, 75% of the crashes at night involve um, things that, that are in front of you, that you know, the car comes out of the driveway and, and hits you or out of the side street. Um, and so, uh, yeah, you really do need a headlight to be seen and a rear reflector will get you seen 99% of the time, but it's that 1% where, hey, you know, it's not that expensive to run a taillight too. So it's, it's that sort of thing. It was, it was his own personal evaluation of, the, of those issues of mirrors and taillights and also of infrastructure that most of the infrastructure that was being built back then that was being constructed was really very poor. It was like, okay, well, this is the sidewalk. We'll get you off the road because that's safer. And he, he was the first one to look at the pioneering studies of bicycle crashes and say, oh, wait a minute, here's what, here, here are the actual proportions of crashes in urban areas and in rural areas and they're very different. In urban areas, you really most have to be worrying about what's in front of you. Um, and, and also that only one in four, one in five um, bicycle crashes that send someone to the emergency room involves a car at all. So he had, I mean, this, even the, the, the second edition of, cycling, of, of um, Effective Cycling, the, the first one I own, that chapter on crash types and the chapter on how to ride on the road are just golden. It's beautiful. I mean, it's just revelatory. A lot of the, a lot of the political stuff is, is, you know, you take it or leave it, but he was always trying to stand up for the rights of bicyclists. And so I respected him for that, even if, as I've said, on some issues, he was really off the mark. Um, he took did he did he did he ever advocate for slowing vehicle traffic? You know, it's like um, here in L.A., our speed limits are now. I mean, there's a 
I live on a street where the speed limit is 45 miles an hour. Um, and when I go ride up and down my residential street, cars are not just doing 45. They're, they're, you know, it's mm -hmm. typical that you do 10 miles an hour over before you expect a cop to pull you over if well, there is a cop. And, yeah. you know, 30 years ago, these speed limits were more like, you know, what, 30 miles an hour? Well, has the speed limit gone up on your street, are you saying? Yeah, it's gone up from 35 well, to 45 in well, 20 that, years. Something, but I'm something. saying like now that cars, cars are now so much faster than they used to be, did he ever, did he ever, you know, advocate that, hey, you know, these speed limits are getting out of control or he just, he was just like, hey, you know what? Cars are getting well, faster. You've got to just keep going. He, he, I don't think he ever addressed that issue. Um, you know, that, that was not his thing. Um, certainly, I, I agree completely with you. That's, that's off the wall. You should not have a speed limit like that on a residential street. But he, he didn't. He, he, it, you'd have to look in his book, Bicycle Transportation, which is published by MIT Press, to see what he said about uh, motorists. Because uh, effective cycling um, is targeted toward bicyclists. Bicycle Transportation, his other, other uh, books still in print, um, addresses those issues of of uh, transportation as a whole and street design. Um, I haven't read that recently. I'm sure he addresses this somewhere, but again, um, improving infrastructure was not his thing. His thing was how do you ride, as you said, given the conditions as they exist? Mm -hmm. And how do you protect the rights of bicyclists to continue to ride? Uh, I would certainly say that now if people are raising speed limits, one way to protect bicyclists' rights is to lower the speed limits back down. I'm actually looking forward to when, um, when cars become automated. It'll be a, be a decade or two because then there will be more regularity. You won't have these... Um, cowboy drivers out there the thing with what what we have here in la is we have a dot that has spent the last 10 years actually touring the neighborhood councils and i've actually chased them around from neighborhood council to neighborhood council for a while when i had time and rebutted their arguments but there is this law that uh, we have here called the 85th percentile. And I think it's replicated in a lot of states. And I think that's where a lot of the friction comes between infrastructuralists and the vehicular cycling uh, groups is that, um, you know, it makes sense to take the lane and to advocate to, to be in the lane. It's just, it would make a whole lot more sense if the traffic was slower it's really scary when the traffic is 45 and 55 miles an hour on four lane streets where you have people driving, you know, like maniacs and passing on the right and, or passing on the 
passing on the right and so forth. And I think that's where a lot of the friction comes, but I think there can be a lot of agreement between the two trains of thought on this. Well, yeah, well, absolutely. I mean, it, it is a lot more pleasant and, um, you know, probably safer depending of course there are other reasons crashes occur but generally safer to ride on a street where the speeds are lower i you know yeah. I, I much prefer to ride on a residential street uh or a rural back road than out on a, a four-lane highway right which does road. bring us to to our next uh guest adrienne we'd love to have you stay on uh, John and, yeah, and I'm, continue on with this with yeah, the discussion. I'm, I can do that, sure. Okay, and we have Adrian Hoff with a group called Streets for All, um, which just recently did a political action where they gathered political support during these times right now during COVID to get the mayor to announce a program called Slow Streets. Am I am I right, Adrian? Am I saying this right? Um, we've had you, we've had Adrian on the show before, and I'm kind of embarrassing myself because my laptop died here. But uh, not just political support, but community support as well. Uh, right. After COVID started, uh, we we got this idea to 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 do this, and we started seeing other cities throughout the world that are much more progressive with transportation start to implement slow streets and it's called something different within every city and every city does it slightly different <clears throat> but uh here in los angeles it's being uh, they're calling it slow streets where it's not a hard closure it's just a barricade and some signage at the intersection of the street so local traffic can still get through and access but it's making it clear that cars are the guests in this space these streets are meant for pedestrians and active mobility so for the last two months, we've been doing just a whirlwind tour of, of trying to, virtually of course, of uh, gathering su- uh, support from various community organizations and reaching out to neighborhood councils. And we've reached out to, I think about 80, 85 neighborhood councils. There were some where it just simply didn't make sense. Um, we knew that the streets, like for example, like in hills and stuff like that, or, we knew that it would just be so nimby that it wouldn't even be worth the effort to, to reach out to them. Um, but we also engaged with different community organizations. And on April 22nd, we submitted an open letter uh, to the mayor, um, the, uh, the, the county department of public health, city council and other community leaders asking for this. And we had about two dozen community groups sign on in support. So. It, it's been a lot of evenings, lunch breaks, weekends spent sending emails to neighborhood councils and, and groups. So it's, it's been very rewarding seeing this finally coming to fruition. Yeah, great work. Thank you for that. Um, you know, we have this problem in Los Angeles where, like I said, like the LADOT and the LAPD have been campaigning they've actually been actively campaigning to raise speed limits around the city and i think it was something like a hundred miles of la streets recently got a speed limit increase including the street in front of my place 
And uh, now that COVID is a thing, people, there's less cars on the road. And when there's less cars on the road, there's more space for people to speed. And you've got this issue where there's a lot more people walking and those people need to, you know, spread out. And the sidewalks are not very wide in a lot of places around LA. So this is kind of awesome that it's happening. I can't believe it's actually happening. I know, I'm, I'm still in shock that it's happening because um, it's kind of a lonely world to be in transportation advocacy. Uh, very often your efforts don't go very far. So to see such a huge win, I, I, I get shivers just thinking about it. It's, it's fantastic. Uh, but yeah, like, like Don said, like the sidewalks aren't wide enough. The average width of a sidewalk in Los Angeles is 4.4 feet. That's not sufficient, even if we weren't under a pandemic. But now that we are and we have to maintain six feet from one another and we see so many folks on the street not wearing proper face coverings, we have to give a safe option for folks just to, to protect themselves from both the virus and from vehicular violence. So how many miles are we looking at? How many miles of slow streets are we going to get out of this, do you think? I think so. Uh, so far today, we've uh, uh, the city has rolled out, I think, about eight miles of it. Okay. Between, uh, uh, Sawtell and, um, and, and uh, Del Mar, not, not Del Mar. Um, Del Rey. Del Rey. Thank you, Eric. I always You're close. To up. You could probably speak better on this than I could about uh, what's happening there right now. Is that yeah. Eric Bruins? No, so, but he was definitely a big part of it. Uh, this is Eric DeSobe. I'm on the Delray Neighborhood Council. And uh, yeah, Councilman Bond's office was great, including Eric Bruins helping us get this through. I can actually see the slow street signs from my, uh, from my balcony. It's not too far, just up the street here. So those dropped today and uh, they're spread out throughout Delray. And so far, so good. We uh, have been charged really by the mayor's office in the city to uh, monitor and kind of take a lot of responsibility for things, um, which is not too surprising. The mayor was a little bit slow on this one, but we're excited to have him come around. And yeah, things dropped today. Yeah, maybe for context, I think the most feedback we heard that was negative was, you know, people's hangover from the Venice Boulevard situation. And so anything related to streets really freaks people out, especially when they hear the word temporary, they replace it very quickly with permanent. Um, but there was a lot of folks who did understand what Adrian was just saying about space and distance and room and just slowing things down traffic wise for the little bit of traffic that's out there. And so that was able to carry the day. And yeah, we were able to use Streets for All's amazing template in terms of the resolution. We passed it in our neighborhood council in early April. Uh, Bonin was really excited to have some cover from us to do it. And he pushed it through uh, with us in West LA. So, um, you know, we're about to drop it on April 30th and on April 29th, about 5 PM, the mayor pulled the plug. Um, so we're, it's nice to see that it came back around in these, these three weeks. And yeah, we're checking to see what happens. I, I don't think the world will end like many predicted. Um, we were out looking at some of the streets that had the most pushback and it was super quiet. People were walking around occasionally. A car or two would come down the street a lot slower than usual. And that was about it. So we're excited to see it uh, come to action. If you want to follow the, the updates, uh, we'll mostly be on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, Twitter is Delray Neighbor and then Delray NC on Instagram. But yeah, we'll keep everyone posted. All right, so uh, just to let the listener know who we have, we have Adrian Hoff with the uh, Koreatown Neighborhood Council, or is there more than one Koreatown? 
Um, it's Wilshire Center Koreatown Neighborhood Council. We probably should be subdivided into several. Uh, that was a big controversy, controversy actually two years ago, but the, the full council name is Wilshire Center Koreatown Council. And for the sake of clarity, I'm, I'm, uh, I, I had to recuse myself from everything that, that, that Wilshire Center Koreatown's doing regarding the slow streets thing, since I am on the steering committee for Streets for All, conflict of interest, having to keep those actions separate. We have uh, neighborhood council members Scott Gamson of Silver Lake, Hannah Globus mm -hmm. of um, Greater Toluca Lake, and we have Eric Desobi. Desobi? Uh, Desobi, you got it, yeah. From Del Rey. Eric, your city was featured in that Times article about, <laughs> you like, called it an April Fool's joke because they gave you <laughs> low streets and then took it away or how? Yeah, that was, that was right. So we were pretty much ready to go. Uh, DOT had everything queued up and then the mayor, um, intervened and said the public health folks weren't on board with it and so we had to pause it and it gave him to his credit a little more time to make things more citywide even though uh, we would have loved to have started things on April 30th but yeah now we have uh, some more momentum the mayor's behind it and NCs have an opportunity to participate through the application process that the mayor's office put out hopefully that's not too cumbersome and onerous and is uh, able to be accessed by all folks in the city that want to see this happen so we'll stay tuned. And so you credited uh, Streets for All with uh, with giving you a template for this. Streets for All has gotten 10 neighborhood councils signed on, right, Adrian? so far? We're at 12 so yeah. far, with yeah, about 20 others working on getting it on the agenda. So we're making some excellent progress. Can you name some of the groups that are behind you? We've got Neighborhoods United for Safe Streets, which I believe is Scott's organization. Yep. Uh, yep. Neighborhood Council Sustainability Alliance, Lyft, Bird, LA, uh, Los Angeles River Communities for Environmental Equity, Commotion LA, um, Move LA, Spin, West Hollywood Bicycle Coalition, People for Bikes, Fastlink, DTLA, Bike Culver City, Santa Monica Spoke, Coalition for Clean Air, League of Women Voters, Sunrise Movement, and more. So it's, it's so exciting to be having such a great coalition of, of organizations that are behind this. What is exactly a slow street? Like how do they, what does the infrastructure look like? Like do they take the speed, like Sautel I think has a, what, a 45 mile an hour speed limit? Do they take that sign down or do they cover it up and put a different speed limit? How does it work? Yeah, so what, what happened this morning, because we were kind of curious too what it would look like in Del Rey, and so what they've dropped at different either entrances to streets kind of off your main arteries or even on some of the smaller intersections on uh, the more residential streets are two orange cones and one a-frame and that's placed in the center of the street so if you're thinking curb to curb it's pretty much we see it in the middle and there's some pretty solid signage of this is a slow street and they also have signage as a little different um, reminding folks about social distancing and six feet away so it's not too cumbersome. It's not a barricade. It's not anything that would block uh, or let someone feel like it was blocked. It just kind of triggers your uh, hopefully uh, watchful eye if you're driving that this is something different is coming your way. You should slow down and there'll likely be people and other things on the street. Um, and I think part of the reason they chose to do that was uh, it's cheaper, first of all, but also it gives us a chance to be a little more mobile with things if we need to move it you know, closer to one curb or another. Um, they also didn't want to add any enforcement and LAPD is not involved or parking's not involved or anything like that. So 
Uh, honestly, if people did choose to, to move it, if they didn't like it, they could do that and we would move it back. Um, but yeah, that's the infrastructure that's there presently and I think it was the right choice to do. I have a question for you. Have, have any of you spent much time up in Berkeley? Because they've had something, they've had these bicycle boulevards since before 1980, which is essentially the same idea that <clears throat> these are streets where bicyclists can get through and use them for through routes but motorists can't because of the use of diverters and barriers. Um, and uh, my impression, um, having ridden there on a number of occasions, is that it works very well. Um, the thing is, though, the street still operates as a street. It's not a place where pedestrians expect to wander around in any direction because there is, there is bicycle traffic and motor traffic. So the, the street basically still operates according to vehicular rules, but it is a slow street and a low traffic street. <clears throat> are, th are there expectations on these slow streets that pedestrians will actually walk into the street? Well, um, or I, no. that was a question, question for, uh, oh, okay. for uh, the folks that did the slow street treatment here. Uh, yeah. Like Sawtell, is there, there's an expectation that they there would? There is, yeah. And so okay. where they ended to up- To kind of reference what John was saying. Sure. Yeah, that's why their placements at the uh, beginning of streets, especially coming off of main arteries, um, was designed to cue drivers that it's likely you'll encounter folks in the road. And I think the more people can get out and that's clear to, to people that are driving that this is a different type of street, the slower they're going to go and the better that will be. How, how is this connected to what the city is offering as far as getting uh, like a, a slow street in any neighborhood where anybody has asked for it? So uh, the way that Streets for All has been doing the outreach for, uh, for that. Um, so from my understanding, Eric reached out to us when he was hearing that we we're already working on this. And he's very progressive with transportation issues. And so... Uh, that's why Del Rey was the first one to, to end up getting this. Was there, They were the first neighborhood council to meet. They were the first neighborhood council to get this on the agenda. And uh, we've been reaching out to, I, I think I mentioned like 80, 85 neighborhood councils and, 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 and trying to focus mostly on the ones that are more park poor and would really benefit from this treatment the most. We've heard back from a lot of them. We haven't heard back from a lot of others as well, too. So uh, whoever is actually getting this on the agenda and saying they want this, those are the neighborhood councils that are getting it. And um, it, I, I'm grateful that at least with this method, there's, they're allowing community organizations as well to reach out for this. So it's not going to be exclusive to neighborhood councils. Um, I was talking over Twitter with somebody today who lives in a very NIMBY neighborhood council district. And they were really upset that they're not going to benefit from this. So um, I was brainstorming with them, try to figure out a way to partner with the community organization to get this kind of treatment in their neighborhood. But um, we have been reaching out to community organizations all over the city and to city council offices. And uh, plus it helps that Eric's uh, neighborhood council is in Mike Bonin's district. And we all know that he is just, our savior as far as progressive transportation policies go. So unfortunately folks that live in, in council districts like say John Lee, they probably won't have the same kind of fortune. Sorry, Don, <laughs> I know you live in John Lee territory. <laughs> I hope it's different for you. <laughs> 
There, there's some signs on my street that road work is happening, and I'm wondering if they're going to erase the road diet that's out there. Oh, I hope not. I, I hope it's not the ADAPT program and eliminating that, too. All right. Well, um, so a lot of these are being done on the west side, right, um, Adrian? So the first ones are, but um, my neighborhood council, Wilshire Center, Koreatown, voted unanimously on Monday to support this. Um, I've got the list right here of other ones. Um, United Neighborhoods Neighborhood Council, which is like West Adams, Jefferson Park, um, area like south of Koreatown a bit uh, around the 10 freeway. So it's Delray, Hollywood Studio District, Los Feliz, NoHo, Palms, United Neighborhoods Neighborhood Council, West LA, Wilshire Center, Koreatown, Van Nuys, Mid-City West, and Hollywood United and plenty, about 20 others that are gonna be getting this on the agenda. So they're all over the city. And I really wish that, and that's kind of the issue I find with the mayor doing this bottom up, is that it's allowing this kind of be quashed by more NIMBY areas. And so there's a lot of folks that would really benefit from this that aren't gonna be getting that treatment. So um, I'm hoping that, that folks on the east side, south side end up, uh, filling out the, the LDOT application and getting this to their communities. So what, what's your outreach like for Streets for All? Um, we've been sending emails to neighborhood councils. Um, I network like crazy at any kind of event that I go to with the neighborhood councils. So uh, I was looking through my Rolodex and I had contacts up at probably about half of the neighborhood councils, if not more, which was pretty cool. So I just, utilize that and emailed everybody whose cards I had. And uh, th then we're able to utilize other alliances like the Sustainability Alliance, the CD13 Alliance, and finding um, sympathetic folks on those neighborhood councils to reach out to. And then once we, we kind of maxed out on the folks that we personally know, we just started sending emails cold to neighborhood council presidents or chairs of transportation committees to see if, if this is something that they could get on the agenda. And uh, we've had some luck with doing that, but of course, most of the responses we're getting are from folks that already are familiar with us. Um, but I, I talked to you earlier online about, you, you spoke about marginalized communities. I was wondering if you had something in particular you want to say about, about your outreach to those communities as opposed to, is that the same as, Okay, so you've got NIMBY communities. Is there a NIMBY community, is that a thing? Yeah, so communities that have less resources, those are the ones that we were targeting the most. Like we, we wanted to make sure that every single neighborhood council is being contacted about this in, in South LA, um, on the east side, where they're park poor, where they're more subjected to environmental racism, and they are really going to benefit from this much more than the more affluent communities. We don't want this to be something that more privileged communities, people who have the luxury of being bored in their homes during quarantine are gonna be benefiting from. Uh, folks like that need this arguably less than folks that need a safe place in order to get to their essential job. So that's where I'm hoping the city puts most of their, their energy. Scott, can you tell us about your organization, Neighborhoods United? Neighborhoods United for Safe Streets. Uh, we sort of formed, it came out of actually the work we did with uh, Rowena, and I'm sure most of you are familiar. Uh, Rowena was a street that was road dieted um, here in Silver Lake, and there was a big NIMBY push to actually undo that. 
And at the time we actually had a neighborhood council that was made their platform to actually undo the road diet. Um, and then myself and actually uh, another, my co-founder and compatriot, uh, Terrence Houston, LA Bike Dad, um, started a grassroots campaign to, to reverse basically the conversation about the road diet yeah. um, and um, ended up uh, being able to coalesce a, a large um, coalition of parents, of bikers, of um, of um, community members who wanted to keep the safety of that road diet. Um, and we succeeded at that. We actually got CD4 David Rue to reverse course. He was ready to undo it. Uh, we put enough pressure on him to actually turn it around and we saved that. Um, and from that work, um, we decided to actually form a larger coalition. So Neighborhoods United for Safe Streets uh, basically consists of the neighborhoods of Silver Lake, Las Vilas, and Atwater Village, um, realizing that we're all connected um, and that we could work together to sort of actually try and ferment more projects and be more proactive as opposed to defensive and actually start actually getting projects done. We were in the process of working on a bunch of stuff when um, uh, the pandemic hit and we've sort of slowed down a bit, but now that we're moving forward, so it's interesting. So um, Streets for All had actually sent out their first emails looking for the slow streets and asking about stuff. We at um, Neighbors United for Safe Streets had already started discussing a similar idea. Um, and most specifically, um, the area around the reservoir, around Silver Lake Reservoir. And I don't know if anybody is familiar with it, and particularly what it looks like right now, but um, a lot of our, um, the pathways around the reservoir are not that wide in a lot of places. Um, again, pretty narrow. So it's hard to actually, if you're trying to walk in either direction, it is really hard to socially distance. Plus we've got a lot of joggers and a lot of people on bikes now too. And so what's happened is, what was going to happen is that people have taken over the street. Um, and as Adrian pointed out, now we're seeing, you know, problems where we do have many more vehicle and people conflicts. Um, and so the initial idea that we had started with at NUS was the idea of actually trying to close the innermost lane around the reservoir so that the vehicle traffic would be going one way which it would be clockwise and um, pedestrians and bikers would be going the opposite direction counterclockwise. Um, right now there's been a lot of pushback um, even though it seems to be something that a lot of people think is a good idea so at NUS we're going to be working on that um, and now that we actually have a template thanks to um, Streets for All and in particular now that the city actually has a website that we as an organization can submit we're going to be able to do that. And um, so that's actually going to be very helpful. May, may I say something that what you just described makes sense to me because you were actually separating bicycle space and or you know, well, not necessarily bicycle space, but um, vehicular space from pedestrian space. Um, what we see in the COVID um, crisis here is that people want more pedestrian space. Um, and it, it, it seems to me it, it's, it's going to work to increase the width, the effective width of the sidewalk by 
taking a lane of traffic and, and turning it into uh, an extension of the sidewalk. But if you have people wandering around in every direction in the street on foot, then you have issues if the street is actually being used for, for transportation. If it's anything more than like a Dutch Woonerf, where cars really just drive to get in and out, um, and they don't have to go through. Um, and same with bicyclists, where, it's, where the, the, the vehicle traffic, including bicycle traffic, is really light, and they understand they've got to go slowly. And by slowly, I mean slowly enough that if the kid runs out from the side of the street, you can stop before you hit the kid by five miles an hour. Scott, so you're what you would call a uh, transportation activist, advocate with uh, advocate. How do you balance your role as an advocate for safe streets and as a neighborhood council board member? Yeah, it gets a little tricky at times. Um, Dunn, which runs Department of Neighborhood Empowerment, which sort of oversees the neighborhood councils, tends to be very, very conservative uh, in terms of conflicts. And so I see Adrian nodding her head. Uh, and, uh, and so, and I can say like stuff is like one particular situation came up that was very concerning for me actually in the neighborhood council, which was um, Sunset Brawl. Um, who are working to get um, protected bike lanes on Sunset, um, had come to me uh, asking me to help get a motion before the Neighborhood Council, Civil like Neighborhood Council, in support of what they were trying to do. Um, in the process of that, um, Dunn basically came and said, well, since you were part of, since you have your own organization that does, has worked in part, and us had worked somewhat with, Sunset for All, that they deemed it a conflict of interest. So if you look at any of the ethics rules, um, because we were not um, actually um, benefiting in any financial way, nor were we material, any sort of material way at all, um, there is no legal conflict of interest, but they decided that it could still be considered an ethical conflict, though, like I said, we were not benefiting in any way. So that was a pretty big disappointment for me that I couldn't actually participate in the discussion on the motion. Um, I had to accuse and, and, you know, and, and I was happy to do it to protect the greater good of getting the motion through. And I can happily say um, the motion passed unanimously. So through the council. Um, so that was good. And one of the reasons I actually came onto the council, I was actually appointed um, was because of, um, and one of the reasons I, you know, um, that many of the other members of the council have said they voted to appoint me was because of um, my knowledge and my work for these issues. And so it seems very, um, so it, it's, it can at times hamstring me in terms of what I can do. And that, that can be somewhat disappointing. I, I'm, Adrian, I'm sure you uh, have experienced something similar at times. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, having to like not be able to participate in discussions. Like I, I knew that this, this slow streets motion, I wouldn't be able to be involved with it at all. Um, but there, there were other frustrating moments that came out of that as well too, and stuff I don't, I don't know if it is necessarily true or not. But it's 
it's it's frustrating. Like I'm just trying to help my community. <laughs> <laughs> like the neighborhood councils are weird. Like we have to adhere to the same rules as any elected official, but only sometimes, or like only certain rules. Like it's it gets messy. Uh, I mean, I honestly think we're held to actually a higher standard than our elected officials. Right. right. Like just finally now, Jose Weizar is being asked to to not participate, but it's like. Okay, but you and I had to to recuse ourselves long before, and we're not doing the corrupt stuff that he was doing. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. So yeah, so that can be frustrating. Um, so you're being asked to recuse yourself, but I mean, you don't have to because there's no legal reason why you should, right? I mean, no, I don't have to. But here's the thing: is if a um, stakeholder decides to actually file a grievance. If I have, and particularly if Dunn and the city attorney have advised me to actually recuse myself and I have not, any legal fees are then incurred by myself and the neighborhood council. Okay. So I, I'm not going to jeopardize either my financial, my financial standing or the neighborhood councils by um, putting any sort of um, possibility of that happening. Well, okay, speaking of stakeholders, have you noticed any changing in their attitudes about safe, street, uh, safe streets and everything with uh, the difference in traffic volumes now and the more use of people doing act active transportation? Yeah, Hannah's, Hannah's nodding. Let's let Hannah answer. Yeah, I, I actually, so I'm on the Greater Tulip Lake Neighborhood Council. Um, and just to give you a little context, we don't even have a transportation committee. Uh, so I actually run all of our transportation stuff through environmental um, because that's the committee that I co-chair and, and, and that's, this is what I'm really passionate about. And we, actually, we have a really active uh, group of community organizations in Greater Tulip Lake and we're very lucky for that. We have, uh, I think, in four other organizations besides just the neighborhood council that are super active in the community. And we don't always see eye to eye on these transportation issues. I originally got involved uh, in part because I'm dying to see a bike lane on uh, Riverside Drive, which is this lovely little street that's very village-like in Toluca Lake, except for the fact that it has a you know, four-lane highway going through the middle of it. Um, but and, and normally, these groups and I do not always see eye to eye. And just today, actually this afternoon, I got a lovely email from the head of our neighborhood watch. And he also looped in our homeowners association and our garden club. Um, oops, sorry. And he was actually asking our president to apply for uh, safe streets. Um, and the president directed him to me because I've been working on this with Streets for All since April. Uh, and so I was able to send them our map and we've been working on it together to try and uh, and get safe streets out there. But the fact that it, it came from those organizations saying, hey, how do we do this? Should we apply for Toluca Lake? Um, was really exciting for me because normally these are these are issues we do get pushed back on. Yeah. Do you all have the same motion when you do this or is it all tailored to your to your neighborhood? I know, I know for Silver Lake, the motion that, just to say we were supposed to vote on it this past Wednesday, but because it had been our first meeting since February, there's a lot of backlog. So there's going to be a special meeting or hopefully where we should be getting to the motions. I know for Silver Lake, uh, myself and our the, one of the co-chairs of our transportation committee, Cameron Bard, we um, actually tarot it a little bit. We used, we took the template, but actually mixed it up a little bit for um, 
some of our specific issues. Silver Lake, we have, we do have hill streets. And in particular, we have a lot of streets that don't even have sidewalks. And so we were able, we incorporated some of that language into it. And actually I have a question as well for Adrian now. Now that um, we do have actually this um, portal that we can apply you know, for safe streets, is there a need now to actually change how the motions are written in terms of um, the motion is that we will apply? Yeah, I would still recommend uh, passing the motion as neighborhood councils have been doing. That's still sending a message to uh, the city council members because that application goes to LEDOT and they're using that as a guideline and so then they can work with the neighborhood council or community organization to, 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 to best tailor how it's going to be rolled out into their community. So, uh, so still pass the motion that's tailored for your own community. Uh, but then in addition, there's now that extra step of having to fill out that application, which I don't like that that has to be done. Uh, that just adds one more complex layer. But I think that that does, to an extent, depending on how you look at it, make it more equitable. Because if you live in a neighborhood council that doesn't want this, you can still get this through different means. So mm -hmm. like by partnering with the organization and kind of having them sponsor it. Yeah, and anybody can get one of these now, right? As long as you get a sponsor, which it could be the neighborhood council or what's the timeline have they have they given us a timeline on how long this program is going to last no i mean I, I think right now nobody knows how long any of this is going to be lasting uh i don't think anybody even expected us to be in the safer at home or for two months and here we are um one thing i really want to emphasize though is we um it may have slightly misspoke when i said yes anybody could because the application on the LEDOT website does say one per neighborhood council. So it would be great if community organizations and neighborhood councils can, can coordinate their efforts and work together on this because it would suck if, if one organization gets really excited and fills out this application immediately. And, but then like another group who has already been working on this for, uh, for several weeks, their they don't their voice doesn't get heard in the planning process. Uh, so you could have multiple um, nominations of streets. Well, they're, they're looking for like loops, but like as far as applications go, they're looking for just one submission per neighborhood. I just want to clarify that. So because I had actually taken a look at the application portal, um, so they will only accept one application per region. Is that what I'm understanding? So it could be either a neighborhood council or a community-based group. Yeah. That's my understanding. And what's the website that we apply at? Um, that's a good question. Let me get that to you. I'll drop it in the chat. Hannah, like you were talking about these different stakeholders that are being supportive. Do you want to say more about how the neighborhood council can interact with the community and get things done like this? Um, yeah, I mean, in, in part, we're very lucky. You know, I'll just kind of uh preface this with Tulip Lake's a very affluent community and we do have a lot of retirees as well and the a lot of our uh, community members are able to be involved because of those privileges you know they're able to get childcare if they have children at home they're able to you know come to those me these meetings and um participate in these different organizations in part because they have help at home or they only have to work one job or, or one of those things and it does make us very lucky that we have a lot of very strong, very involved community organizations. Um, and the neighborhood council is in constant dialogue with all of them. So 
Uh, we have our uh, beautification partners, which is actually a group that has representatives from all of our different uh, organizations. We have a very strong neighborhood watch um, group. We have a wonderful garden club that the environmental committee has actually worked with on uh, some tree planting on some of our main streets and, and some cleanups. Uh, we have a chamber of commerce that, that comes to almost every neighborhood council meeting. Um, and then the homeowners association is, of, of course as well. Um, and what's really lovely about the way Toluca Lake works is all those organizations kind of work together to, to you know, work towards the best interests of the community. Um, so it was really great to see them come to us today and say, hey, we're really interested in doing this. Uh, and they had suggested a couple streets that are, are um, under our neighborhood watch, but our borders are a little bit different from the neighborhood council. So I'm really glad that we're coordinating on this, especially if we can only do one application, because I'd hate to see you know, just the area where the homeowners association is covered, get their application through, and then they have all the safe streets and then a couple of other, you know, corners of our community don't have a safe street to walk. So one of the things we've tried to do as a neighborhood council as we're uh, coordinating all of those different interests is making sure that kind of every section of the neighborhood has at least one safe street. So we have a fair number of pretty large streets running through uh, various parts of our neighborhood and a freeway cuts through. Um, so making sure that people who are kind of boxed in by larger streets like Lancashire and Camarillo uh, or Vineland um, have a space to go where they don't have to cross one of those major streets to get there. Um, so that's the advantage of being able to do it through having the neighborhood council kind of be the one that is coordinating all of these groups, but we're very, we're very lucky to have all that input from, from all the different community groups. So we're not just on an island by ourselves trying to push this through. So, so it, it sounds like it, it, well, the support was there for you. I, is that the case for everybody? Was it hard to push this through? Well, I will clarify, we have not passed ours yet. Our vote is on Tuesday, uh, but it was really encouraging to see that support come through today. So, so hopefully we will be successful on Tuesday. Uh, how about you, uh, Eric? Was it was it a challenge? Because you, know, you guys were ready for it anyway. It was a challenge, yeah. Um, yeah, I think that's a good word for it. And not, not, not too much to add. Okay. Well, how'd you do it, though? I mean... But, you know, I think we, we were fortunate to have... A, we have a really great president, and he... Yeah, he wanted us to meet early. And so we were the first neighborhood council actually to get back and to meet. And he was open to the idea because I think he saw the long haul of what we would be in. And so yeah, I was open and supportive of me putting this on. And, and I don't think we quite knew what was going to happen. Uh, but we wanted to try it. And we honestly put it on there to juice attendance a little bit at our meetings, just thinking this would be a hot topic for people to engage with. Uh, but the board was very receptive. And so we did a, a, an approval the first time. Um, without any street names and then took that time in between that general board meeting and our next meeting to talk to the community, to talk to Bonin's office. And we worked with them to come up with an initial draft of streets. And then we uh, vetted that with the community and our land use committee. And uh, once we saw, uh, we felt like the community wanted to see and that it was equitably spread throughout Delray, it was near residential density. It would be accessible to, to all income levels that are living here, all those things. Um, yeah, we put it into motion and, and Bonin tried to run it through and we got pretty close, like I said earlier, and uh, eventually had to slow down a bit. But now that we're here, um, we hope that we can offer at least some uh, encouragement for folks that there is possibilities to see this, this happen. And 
we're going to be really uh, transparent about what's working, what's not working as we're doing it. Because I think that's a key part here too, is what data do we see? What's happening on the streets? Do we need to change or move is actually a pretty good list based on what the neighborhood councils are probably doing and what they know about their community. Um, so we're hopeful lots of people will check in with us. We know we're going to be checking in on West LA and, and all the other neighborhood councils that Adrian mentioned have already passed their motion just so we can have the, the best possible outcomes for this temporary project. And I may mean, I say one last thing, I think one of the exciting things too is we're seeing in different cities, say like Oakland or Seattle, um, they're enjoying it so much and they see the opportunity in this, this slow streets idea so much that they are making some things permanent. I know that can be uh, frightening for some of the stakeholders who are opposed to it, uh, but I think there's a lot of great lessons to learn here, uh, but even better lessons potentially from other cities that are trying it that are similar to LA. And so I hope we can keep an open mind that it, it doesn't have to be temporary if we don't want it to, but it very much is, aware is temporary. And so that is the message that we are giving our community and, and um, that's what they're expecting. But I do hope that they are inspired by what they see and that there, there can be a different way uh, to yeah, live and move around your community that isn't so impacted by the car infrastructure. I'm actually relatively new to transportation activism, um, but it, it was one of those things where it was like, once you start seeing it, you can't unsee it. Like I can no longer unsee the amount of space an SUV takes on a street compared to a bicycle or unsee the amount of space a pedestrian takes uh, on a sidewalk compared to uh, a, compared to a car. Um, and it was interesting. I saw a, a it was on Twitter, a tweet from someone that I follow that was like, guys, I just found the best place to go running and keep social distance during this crisis. Parking lots, there's so much space. And it was, there's this revelation, I think, happening amongst a lot of residents where they're going, oh, wait a minute, there's 62 feet of space on the street for cars and parking and like four for me. And I'm hoping that that, that revelation kind of opens people's eyes a little bit to what I started seeing really quite recently. And now I literally can't go back to, to not seeing it anymore. Um, and so I'm curious to see what the effects are on general, you know, active transportation uh, activism as, you know, as we come to the other side of this. If there was some way we could all get our Rolodexes out and get in touch with people that write stories and somehow get these stories into the press like LAist or, you know, even, you know, some of these smaller blogs, Laura Nelson, get her on the horn and start giving them ideas on stories to really capture this. Cause this is, this is pretty amazing how many people are involved and, and want this. And I'm just not seeing it in the media yet. And it's like, is there some way we can push this right now? Yeah. You know? like, Transportation <laughs> advocacy in LA began about, seven years ago when I got rid of my car and I had a lot of people telling me like, Adrian, you should be writing and sharing your experiences with, uh, with people. And so like it, it was less of trying to change the world and more of just kind of highlighting the joy of getting around without a car and how you're able to experience your community so much better. And uh, within the last couple of years that, that has really evolved to, to changing what I've found to be broken in this city as far as transportation goes. And, and when I say media, I'm talking, you know, the ultimate, like if we can get on ABC7 somehow, or, you know, I don't know, mainstream media versus what we're all doing, you know, Streets Blog is great, but most Angelinos are not reading Streets Blog. Most Angelinos aren't even reading LAist, I don't think, but it's like, how can we work our networks to get more 
stories into the mainstream media is what I'm saying. Well, this, this is mainstream. This is LA Times. This is yeah. well, na- national uh, stories about stuff like this. On Sunday, I'm going to be participating in a 24-hour um, uh, web-based telethon to raise money for um, Metro uh, bus drivers who are uh, personally affected by coronavirus. So um, all the proceeds raised are going to be uh, given to them. So it's going to be a lot of storytellers and comedians uh, sharing their stories about getting around L.A. without a car or whatever city they're in. It's through the, the, the storytelling show Busted, uh, which is an L.A.-based show, but, the, but uh, Scott Schultz, the producer, is just as of Tuesday relocated to his hometown of Boston. So he'll be operating the show there and uh, it's gonna be web-based. I can drop the link in, in the comments if anybody wants to, to tune in and, uh, or make a donation or anything like that to, to, the, to that event. I, I just wanna mention that this morning, for instance, on uh, just watching the NBC Morning News, um, there was a piece on Del Rey. It is starting to filter out, I think. Um, I know just anecdotally, walking around Silver Lake. Everybody's out, um, everybody's walking. And in fact, it's gotten to the point, like our streets, so our streets, because we do not have sidewalks, um, people are actually in the street. And then when you've got cars parked, the streets aren't that wide. So people are sort of more at a distance, sometimes having to duck in and out. But what's happened is now when a car actually, or somebody driving a car actually comes down the street, they're actually forced to stop and slow down for all the people in the street. And I think people are starting to realize that we don't have to have cars speeding at unsafe speeds through our streets. Um, And I've heard as much from people. So I I think people are starting to open their eyes now that they actually are walking and enjoying it and actually stopping and talking to people and sort of, you know, actually getting out there and experience streets in a way that is different than just driving to and from the store or to and from work. Um, Hopefully, you know, I'm hopeful that this conversation is going to continue as we move forward, you know, and eventually when um, Safer at Home is less restrictive, maybe, you know, we will have more of a robust and positive conversation about who exactly our streets are being designed for and how we're using them. Can anybody like read the motion? Is it too long to read, paraphrase it or the motion itself? I can pull it up real quick. Um, I did just want to throw out there, having Streets for All in support of all of these various different transit advocates on different neighborhood councils, especially since most of us are volunteers and we have jobs and some of us have children and we have other lives and uh, you know, we kind of fit this into the cracks of our time, having templates and motions already ready to go for stuff that we're really passionate about has been just enormously helpful and really, really effective, um, you know, because we can kind of adjust and tweak them for, for our specific neighborhood's needs, but having that basis uh, has been huge in being able to get stuff done, uh, you know, it's been, I, I work more than a full-time job, and, and so having that support from them has been enormously helpful. Oh, thanks. I'm glad to hear that. Um, like, I mean, yeah, Streets for All, we're, we're all volunteer operated. Um, I don't know how I find the time in my day for this because I work a full-time job that's fairly demanding. And then um, I'm very involved with the Neighborhood Council and then uh, being on the steering committee for this, I probably, so in addition to, I mean, right now I'm only doing 40 hours, but 
pre-COVID, I was working like 45 hours a week at my job and then um, probably another 30 between Streets for All and Neighborhood Council stuff. But um, I don't have kids or really any other obligations. So I, I just don't devote all my time to this. <laughs> but I found the motion. So if you want me to read it, I can do that. Um, so here's our template. Whereas COVID-19 has wreaked havoc on the city of Los Angeles, disrupted lives, costed lives, and severely hampering our economy. Whereas essential workers still need to get to and from their place of work while maintaining six feet between them and another person. Whereas our road space is now dramatically overbuilt, overbuilt for the current traffic volume. Whereas Angelinos need access to the outdoors to maintain their physical and mental health during this difficult time. Whereas our current bike lane network is inadequate to make people feel like cycling is a safe alternative to public transit. Whereas Los Angeles has seen an increase in speeding since the stay at home order was implemented. Whereas the average width of our sidewalks in the city of Los Angeles is 4.43 feet, making maintaining six feet impossible and resulting in, the, in many people walking, running or biking in the street itself. Therefore, it be resolved that Blank Council supports enhancing mobility and open space access in Los Angeles during COVID-19 and specifically supports pilot a temporary emergency safe streets network throughout Blank's jurisdiction, extending the sidewalk into the street to create more space for people walking, running, or biking using cones or other temporary infrastructure on the following streets, using cones or other traffic calming measures on neighborhood streets to make them safer for people walking, running, or biking in neighborhoods while maintaining local and emergency vehicle access. There you go. All right, and with that, um, thank you. I guess we're gonna, we're, gonna, we're gonna close up the show because uh, people gotta go, but uh, um, where can, okay, so that template is available, it's, pending in several neighborhood councils. We got a vote on Tuesday with the Toluca Lake Neighborhood Council. Yes, we do. And Tuesday at seven. Okay, so maybe we'll check back in with you uh, next Friday and see how that went, Hannah. Yeah. Um, so this is exciting. So Streets for All is making moves. Um, we got to talk to John Allen, the legend of vehicular cycling. Um, although he probably doesn't like that, that term vehicular cycling, but, uh, this has been a great show. We want to thank all our guests and, uh, it's very informative and hopeful. Thank you streets for all for bringing people together who ought to be brought together. Yeah. Yeah. Michael Schneider, the founder of streets for all has, has done a lot with that before, um, e even streets for all was formed. He was, uh, keeping a network of, uh, transportation progressive folks. So that way they can uh, all just kind of pull their efforts and maintain contact with one another. This is promising. So what's next for Streets for All? We want to see what's going to come next. I think that uh, we need to work on that pedestrian, um, the beg buttons. I think we need to force the city to make all the beg buttons turn to walk and give us an honest countdown. I think that should be the next uh, action for Streets for All. What do you think? I, I agree with that. I was working on something like that with the neighborhood council, and then all of a sudden they just deactivated all the beg buttons anyway because of COVID. And um, I submitted for approval, but we didn't get to it at the last meeting, a letter uh, to LADOT and the mayor, essentially thanking them for, for doing that and requesting that it stays that way. 
Yeah, have they? They haven't done that citywide yet, though, have they? I think. I mean, at least not in my area. And there's a ton of crows here. I'm sorry. No, they just do it in like the more pedestrian areas, from what I understand. I want to get to full compliance across every light because it drives me crazy as a as a car driver when I'm trying to time these lights. You know, I try to drive really slow and and just easy and it's hard to time these lights when you can't tell what's going on with the light so anyway um that's it for bike talk right nick or do you have another question uh well john is typing some stuff in the chat i don't know if you want to just briefly address it or i think that uh, anything i typed into chat probably gary seco might uh address next week Right with the sat, we're gonna show. we're gonna interview Gary Zico next week regarding savvy cycling, cycling savvy. I mean, the, is the he main... the is he the founder of cycling savvy? No, no, he he's he's an instructor as I am. He's been one longer than I I was. Okay. Um, the main issue I had here was that um, the 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 issue of distinguishing bicycle space. For our, and, and vehicle space, including bicycle space, from pedestrian space. And what really struck me most was um, your guests saying walking, running, or biking on the streets themselves. Well, bicyclists don't belong mixed with pedestrian traffic. That doesn't work very well. Um, right. Anyway, somehow, somehow all the joggers are in the bike lane yeah, in, well, in my neighborhood. <laughs> My 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 preferred solution would be that you widen the the sidewalk area, but you maintain a distinction between what is a street and what is a sidewalk, because even a bicycle going 15 miles an hour can do some serious damage to a pedestrian, and the, the pedestrian could also do serious damage to the bicyclist. So um, you know there there are places where the rules of of the road for uh, drivers of vehicles need to apply, <clears throat> even if there are no cars, or even if cars are going very slowly. Um, but you really, I mean, 4.43 foot wide sidewalks is pathetic. And I've been to Los Angeles. Yeah, it's pathetic here. I, I've been to Los Everywhere. Angeles. You know, I've been to Los Angeles, and it's one of the most uncomfortable cities for me to be in in all of the USA. Uh, Thank you for saying that, because I, mean, I don't feel like vehicular cyclists out there truly acknowledge that all the time. You know, it, it was, it was, you know, I wasn't, I haven't cycled much in LA. Seco will be able to discuss that, but the, to need to drive 20 miles to get to see a friend on on a, a freeway through the middle of the city, in Boston I don't have to do that. It's a lot more relaxed here. Um, there are so many yeah, I mean, I think the, 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 the mantra here, oh my God, this crow is going crazy. Crow is the river, um, never more. He's right over my shoulder. I think I it see. means something. Yeah, whatever. Uh, I mean, the thing with LA is like, I think that they expect everybody to drive everywhere for everything here. And that's the culture we've had for, you know, since they've kind of reinvented the streets in the 40s and 50s or whatever that was. 
And uh, now we're just mired in that uh, problem. And you could hear, you could hear everybody. What we all want is just safe streets, slow down. Right. I mean, if everybody drove, I drive, I drive uh, in, in a style they call hypermiling, right? Where I am not speeding up to the next red light and stopping. I'm trying to time the lights. So often I'm driving 20 miles an hour and people are rushing around me to get to the light. Yeah, stopping. to get to the red light. Yeah. yeah. And, and they, you know, I think people want to kill me sometimes. I see them in the rearview mirror and it's like, yeah, go ahead, rush around me and they get to the light. And then I'm just sort of coasting through the green. And, and I find that when I come across a bike rider, I'm actually going at about the same speed they are. And it's really safe. And I'm not stopping at the lights. So, I mean, if we could change that culture, we wouldn't need bike lanes. Well, you know, the timing the traffic lights is one of the, one of the issues the city could address. That if you time the traffic lights right, it works better to drive slowly. I, they, they're timed. The lights are timed. Like, like I can actually drive... I, I mean, it's Nick, when Nick and I used to drive home from the KPFK studios, right, Nick, we yeah. made it, we, we would both get on our, on our uh, headsets and talk and I would show Nick how to, you know, hyper mile properly. And we wouldn't stop. I mean, what, what are we driving? Like five miles to get to the freeway. We didn't stop for almost a single light. I mean, maybe we stopped for one light that entire time and you're going at about, <laughs> 20 miles an hour 25 miles an hour right nick yep yeah so and the, it, 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 the, the lights are timed it's just people are told by these big signs that we should be going 45 miles an hour right. have you so the signs say 45 but the lights say 25 uh, well the lights physically keep you to, i mean you can go on google maps and set the time for 3 a.m and Google will give you your trip speed, and it's always around 20 to 25 miles an hour, even at 3 a.m., because there is no other way to time these lights. It's a grid, you know, there's all these competing inter like uh, directions and streets. There's no way is, to time it, it for more than 25 miles an hour. Is this, anything, is this something that's widely known? I think it's, it's something that would be very worth publicizing the people, hey, you know, you're not going to get there any faster by rushing to the next red light. You're going to burn more fuel. You're going to be, you know, create more I, danger. I just, I, you know, I mean, out and... I often talk about this on the show, but I, I used to be in car marketing. I used to work for Nissan North America. And they are a small company compared to, say, a Toyota or a GM they spent a billion dollars a year in North America on marketing. It's collectively, the auto industry is spending $14, 15000000000 billion a year educating us at every sporting event, on every TV show, multiple companies telling us that we should be driving fast and there's no one else on the road. I mean, those car know? ads are just, they're criminal. These car criminal. ads, I saw people driving at 60 miles an hour through the city. Wow, isn't that cool? And yeah. This car perform, you know. I, How do you go up against $14 billion in education from those companies? That isn't companies? education, that's, that's disinformation. 
Well, okay, you know, but I mean, it is it education is. because it is telling people what to do. I mean, it is misinformation, absolutely, but it's like what kind of education campaign could go up against against that? Like, well, you'd have to spend thirty billion dollars to overpower that campaign. You know, I'm I'm. This is why I said I I'm looking forward to automated vehicles because then the liability risk rests with the companies that make the vehicles. Did you see individual drivers? Did you see the, they already are arguing against that. Um, there oh, was an okay. Uber, that Uber driver that, that killed oh, yeah, the, the one in, in the street the one in, in Arizona. Tempe. I've, I've, yeah, there was a very interesting article about that in Ars Technica, by the way. And the, oh. the whole way that was described that the light, the street lights weren't bright enough was total, total bullshit. Yeah, yeah. You've seen that? The, the yeah. lights were plenty bright. There was some guy who drove through there two days later with his cell phone, and you could see everything. Yeah. You, um, you can bet that these huge corporations that, that run, you know, the automotive industry has plenty of lobbying power to uh, tilt the, the blame towards well, the pedestrian and the cyclist. I don't, I don't well, have any faith in the in the automated vehicle uh, revolution that that's going to protect bicyclists and pedestrians. Well, I just well, don't. well but, but look, even now that, that cars are getting um, automated uh, crash prevention and mm -hmm. that has the potential to protect against rear end collisions and also against uh, right hook collisions. And, and, and if, if people discover that they get there just as soon in a, a car that that's going steadily at 25 miles an hour, um, that if the, the car does it for them, I think I think that changes it. It, it. The whole system becomes more orderly. I am concerned, though, that that another aspect of that would be to say, oh well, now the streets are for cars. We don't need you pesky bicyclists there because you get you you upset the system, right? And they're also <clears throat> talking about that you're going to have to wear some kind of uh, some kind of uh, yeah, yeah, some kind of thing that the cars can detect in a deal. Well, that's that's really getting into brave new world. I I, <laughs> I don't see that happening for a long time. It, it's it's. It's, I mean, here, here's, here's another thing, though. You could have a bicyclist wear the, the transponder, but the trash can that rolls out in the street when there's right. a high wind isn't going to wear a transponder. The deer that runs across the right. street isn't going to wear one. So you can't universalize anything like that except maybe on a limited access highway where there are only cars and you pretty much barred anything else from crossing the street. Which itself, the the fact that they make these roads that are cars only is troubling, right? Like there's a lot of routes in California that are basically freeways and the only way you can get through is if you get on the freeway. Yeah, yeah. Well, that 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 is a, a problem because, first of all, you might not be able to get there on, at all on a bike. Although California does allow bikes on the shoulders of a lot of the freeways, it's not the most right. pleasant riding, but it may be the only way to get somewhere. 
I mean, I did that. I was coming down from, uh, where was it? Pismo Beach, which is up central California. I was riding to Los Angeles. And there was a stretch where they shut down the shoulder. And I had to get on the freeway. And as an LCI, I was like, okay, I'm going to get in the middle. And these people were so ruthless. I mean, there were Winnebago's passing me within, I swear to God, a foot or two at, you know, 65 miles an hour. And it was just ridiculous. I was frightened for my life. I actually uh, went into a rest area and just hung out for a second and walked along the side of the road until I could get to a shoulder where it was open again. It was ridiculous. Not sure what to do about that, but it was the well, only route we could take. like a bad situation, you know, that they should have had, what was that, a construction zone? They should yeah. have had a detour. If they're going there was, to allow bicyclists, they, they should. I mean, I'm on, the, I'm on the National Committee for Uniform Traffic Control Devices Bicycle Technical Committee, and we're talking with the, the um, temporary uh, traffic control committee about the need for shoulder or the need for detours whenever there's construction that's that is on the on the plate now i mean when you say detour in this instance it was highway one there was no other route because i was for sure going to take every possible route other than highway you know highway one and there is a, a whole stretch that there is no other route in fact there's a bridge where you're supposed to push a button to flash a sign like bicyclist on bridge because there's no shoulder on the bridge ever. And they, that problem has been there for decades. They, yeah. they haven't done yeah. anything about it. I'm not sure what they could do in this situation where they shut down the shoulder. Maybe they would, you know, close off a lane and allow yeah. bikes well, on there. I don't know. I feel privileged to live in Massachusetts because California is, well, Southern California particularly is so car centric. San Francisco area is not so bad. I mean, Berkeley, mm -hmm. San Francisco itself, other than those horrible hills they got there. <laughs> I, I have a friend who lives at an elevation of 630 feet. And, you know, when I visit him, we ride down Market Street. God, that is, that's scary. They closed that. They, they closed Market Street down to cars. Did you hear about that? No, I mean, or, up on, up on the hill, Portola Avenue, coming down oh, oh, into okay, the city okay. where it's hilly. Yeah, mm -hmm. I saw that about downtown Market Street. Mm -hmm. um, but, uh, you know, having to ride up and down those hills, it's, I think e-bikes make a lot of sense there. I'll just say that. <laughs> right, right. Just to get up those hills. Hey, um, <laughs> before you go on, can we do the headlines with Taranik? Real quick, yeah. Okay, Here's here are the headlines with Taranik. Hey, Bike Talk. I'm Taranik from Havago, here with your weekly bike news. Mayor of London formally announced his street space plan, writing on Twitter, quote, Our plans to make central London one of the largest car-free zones in any capital city in the world, increasing walking and cycling, and improving air quality. London's road to recovery cannot be clogged with cars. The goal is to give citizens more options to walk and bike to reduce the number of cars and also number of people on public transit. Air quality was also cited as a major issue. And the UK is set to announce a £250 million investment in new bicycle infrastructure, as well as fast-tracking the legalization of electric scooters. 
Montreal is turning 200 kilometers of streets into a temporary active transportation corridor to allow walking and biking during the summer season. This is on top of the 130 kilometers of bike paths the city was going to add this year. Here in Los Angeles, Streets for All was able to get at least 10 neighborhood councils to pass their motion calling on Los Angeles to implement open streets to allow the full use of some streets for safe, distanced walking and biking with many more neighborhood councils considering the motion. Laura Nelson at the LA Times wrote that Mayor Eric Garcetti just announced that Los Angeles is starting a slow streets program this weekend, temporarily closing neighborhood streets to cars to give people more space to run, walk, bike, push strollers, etc., while still maintaining social distancing. We just saw the first of these slow streets implemented this week in West LA. The hope is that the city will continue implementing them citywide. Thanks for listening. You can follow us on Twitter for daily urbanism and micromobility news and updates. Our handle is have a go. So that was our headlines with Taranik. Thanks, Taranik. Hey, you know, um, I got to say, as much as I've been upset with John Forrester, one of the last, I guess it was his last uh, public speaking arrangements, he came to speak at, uh, it was a car, it was a pro- it was it was an anti, what do you call it? There, there there was a there was a conference that he spoke at that was basically like a pro car conference, and he did uh, actually troll them pretty good at that conference, in in a very sensible way. I mean, yeah. they were upset about some protected bike lanes that were put in on Venice Boulevard, and he told them he was like, you know who's responsible for that. All of you that don't uh, that don't tolerate bikes on the road, you know, and everybody in there was like kind of quiet about it. Like, yeah, I don't sounds very much like John. Yeah, he, that was he, cool. He's a very he was a very very smart man, except in terms of being diplomatic. <laughs> right. No, I, I I was watching and I was like, okay, what's he gonna say? I was watching the live stream and I was like, okay, good troll. That was good. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, anyways, I, I appreciate talking to you, John, and meeting you. Um, I organized all these group rides out here in Los Angeles called Midnight Riders. And way back in 2006, when I put the website up for our group ride, um, the first thing I did was put a link to uh, Bicycling Street Smarts. I, I had no idea who you were. I just like looked up uh, bicycle safety and found your your uh, online. I, I, f- I forget what the what the actual address is, but it's your pamphlet in online form. Mm-hmm. And I put that on the front page to just okay. try to tell everybody like, hey, like, here's how we're riding. This is how we ride smart in the street. Okay, well, well thanks. And uh, also note that the new edition is heavily revised there's a lot more information on riding in groups not something oh, okay. we're doing right now but eventually i th- think we'll be doing it again and <clears throat> it's been been re-edited the illustrations are all new by carrie caffrey um so um let me see if i can uh Cause I have that link. Let me see yeah, if you quick. just go to if you go to cyclingsavvy.org, there'll be a, a promotion of it. 
Yeah, there. Let me just look this up real quick because I have linked. It's um, where is it? Bikeexpert.com. Street Smarts. Yeah, that's the old edition. Is there is there another one online that's just Um, like in this format or the the well actually on on my site I have versions. I have a version in French, a version in Romanian, believe it or not. Someone decided <laughs> to translate it, and a left-hand drive version. And there also are several versions that were done for state departments of transportation. There's a California version, which was uh, solicited by a number of bicyclist organizations. Um, but the new version is on cyclingsavvy.org. It's available on paper. And it's also available as a Kindle ebook. I think you guys should do a nighttime, nighttime riding. Is there one? Uh, Is there night, a night, nighttime riding video? Um, there, there are a couple of videos showing nighttime riding um, that have been done by cycling savvy people. I, I don't. I'm, I'm trying to think of one that's specifically about nighttime riding. It yeah, is, that's I mean, that's a is. big one. Yeah. That's a big one. A lot of people I'll, here in LA have been hit and killed at night. Mm-hmm. You know, like I I mean, five blocks over DeSoto Street, there was a couple kids riding vehicular in the right lane, and it's a three. It's a six lane street. It's actually a seven lane street with the middle middle lane. But it's a six-lane street, and some woman uh, passed a truck on the right, sped past the truck, and plowed right into the kids. One of them lived. The other one was killed. And then she took off. Mm. And we, there was a big old manhunt. And, like, uh, you know, uh, she ended up being, like, some 26-year-old living up here in Porter Ranch. And it's just, like... They had lights. They had all their stuff. They were riding vehicular. And it was nighttime. It was around 12 at night. Mm-hmm. A lot of people ride home from restaurants that they work at. A lot right. of, you know, there's a lot of issues with nighttime riding here because there's just not as many cars and people are speeding. And, the you know, out here, especially where I'm at, you can go a half a mile between lights, you know. Mm-hmm. So you can get up a lot of speed out here. Yep. Well, there's a lot, a lot that rests on the, the drivers, especially if you have these streets that, that promote that kind of driving. Yeah. Um, and thing is here in Boston, it's so broken up with driveways and frequent intersections. People just can't drive fast on most of these streets. You can't right. do it. It's too, it's, you know, too often you would encounter something that requires you to, to slow down or stop. So I think it's the same thing in New York City. Like the first time I went to New York City, it was actually before they implemented all the bike stuff. And I was a little bit, I brought my bike and I was a little bit like scared. Like, okay, what's this yeah. going to be like? It was so much easier. It's so much more just relaxing. Although, you pretty much have to ride in the middle lane. 
because cab drivers don't care about you one way or the other. They'll right hook you or left hook you no matter where you're at. Yeah. So it was like actually safe to be in the middle lane on like Fifth Avenue or whatever. But people were driving <laughs> half the speed of LA traffic. So it yeah, felt I mean, comfortable. For you to say that New York is a relaxing place to ride a bicycle <laughs> makes me laugh because compared with Boston, it isn't. I, oh, I have, oh, you know, really? I, I've no, I've, 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 well, it's partly because I'm not familiar with New York. There, there are places that are relaxing, like the, the, the Hudson River Greenway, but you get out on those big avenues and um, there, the traffic moves along. The, the traffic lights used to be timed at 30 miles an hour. Uh-huh. And what people do is they, if if they're going to go around the corner at the end of the block, they'll speed up so that then they get around the corner and get to the 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 next light on the cross street before it turns red, and then they then they're at the end of the greens and they'll they'll go faster than thirty so they'll get up to the the head of the sequence and then they can do it again um, if they're turning again so. There, there's that kind of thing. Now the speed limits are down to 25. Now they've had, they had door zone bike lanes for years. Now they're putting in so-called protected bike lanes, which have their own problems. Right, um, the pedestrians walking into them. Pedestrians, uh, park vehicles, construction. Um, <clears throat> basically, what I'd like to see would be for a couple of those north-south avenues in New York to be turned into slow streets, slow vehicular streets, but where the the traffic lights favor a speed of 15 miles an hour. Kind of like in uh, San Francisco, I think it's Valencia. Yeah. Where they've timed it for bikes. Right. That's actually yeah, pretty comfortable. I mean, in, in Copenhagen, that was a big battle that cyclists had. You'd think, oh, Copenhagen's nirvana. But, in fact, they had a huge battle to get the green wave with the lights timed to the speed of bicyclists there. It was 20, 30 years ago that that happened. Um, because if it, no matter what kind of a facility you're on, a street, a bikeway, whatever, if you come to the end of every block and the traffic signal is red, there are either two things you're going to do. One is you're going to say the hell with the light and run the light. The other is you're going to wait for it and you won't get where you're going on time. So, um, yeah, I mean, there, it's just, it, it, it's, it's just, you know, Forrester always talked recently since he read Peter Norton's book about motordom. And this is motordom. It's institutional motordom that sets things up so they they work for motorists. Or right. motorists think they work for motorists. Uh, they think, oh, well, I could go, as, as you said, they think I can go 45, but it actually works better to go 25. But it, it's also this difference between bicyclists and um, and um well and pedestrians that pedestrians there's a lot of people who will cross the street against the light on the foot 
Right. Maybe not so much in LA because LA the traffic is really ferocious. So forty five. People, I mean, people the thing, oh, they, and they get they get creamed. I, I yeah. was just like, I just watched a video yesterday of someone. It happens all the time, and here, there's so many hit and runs. There are four hit and runs every single day against yeah. a cyclist or a pedestrian every single day in Los Angeles Yeah, well, that, that are reported. They don't even report all the hit and runs. Uh -huh. Well, it's criminal, of course. Um, and, uh, it's I, chaos. I go, go so far as to support surveillance cameras to catch people who, who hit and run because, I mean, that's, that's killing oh, yeah. someone is not, small, not a small issue. I mean, I, when I got hit, I was hit from behind riding vehicular and I was hit at a high speed. I saw it coming. The guy was swervy. He was obviously drunk. And I had already been aware of the hit and run problem. We actually were doing some demonstrations about it like two months before. And uh, I just happened to land on the pavement after I got thrown I, mm -hmm. I landed on the pavement and my head was facing the number one lane, which is on the left side. And the guy drove around me and I caught his license plate and I was just laying on the ground and I texted the license plate and I was like saying it over and over because it's, right. it's, it's so hard to even catch somebody, even with a surveillance camera, right. even when, even when you, see it happen in front of your face and i've seen other hit and runs happen you, you just are so shocked you don't even have time to see the little well, license plate you know, I, I find it i i just go into my adrenaline pumps up and then i don't remember the license number so what it's you so was, hard yeah what you did was was really good so what happened to the driver okay so what happened was i went to the hospital the cops came there and they took a report. When I got out of the hospital the next day, I was relatively okay. I didn't break any bones, uh -huh. but um, I called the cops and I, and I was just thinking like, Hey, I got the plate. They must've, you know, right. yeah, I called them. I was like, tell me how it went down. You know, you broke down the door, wife screaming, kids running, what happened? And they, they were like, well, it's going to take two weeks to run the plates. Yeah. So, I know and like they were they were yeah, actually right. annoyed that I called and they were like well if you want to like you know try to find the guy you can try to find the guy oh yeah you you go out there right you go there bring bring a bring a bring a few NRA uh, vigilantes with you well I'll tell uh, you what I did I posted I actually tweeted the plate number and I posted that night from the ground when I texted it, it went to my Twitter account and um, by the next day on our forum, our Midnight Riders forum, where there's like 10,000 members, somebody there knew somebody in the CHP and they ran the plates and the guy was two miles up from where I got hit. We found out everything about him. Um, I found his car at an automotive shop. We found, you know, like I didn't want to, I didn't want to kick his ass or anything. I just wanted to like find out who he was and like have the cops arrest him. Mm -hmm. And even though I got all that information, I got, I got, I went to the automotive place. They were replacing the hood. I got it on film, like got all of his information. 
the cops were still like just like dragging their feet and it turns out if you don't like because i didn't see the guy's face oh so, right i couldn't i was on the ground you know like i yeah, couldn't right. even see into the thing so what they did was is they they he even admitted to his insurance company that he did it but that wasn't admissible in court because it's attorney client privilege I yeah. found out so much about hit and run, why they happen and why people get away with it because they don't want to go to a jury trial where they ask the question, did you see this guy driving the car? And I would have said no. And then the jury would be like, well, maybe not. Maybe, you know, it's not worth it to them because yeah. they're so, they're so overburdened. So well, the guy, the guy did get a $500 fine and a misdemeanor well, hit and run. He pled. So yeah, that's, that's, but I mean, yeah, that's, that's not enough. The, the only real, real way you hit these people is through their insurance company with a civil, with an insurance claim or civil lawsuit and their insurance rate going way up. I mean, the, I, the, the, the criminal justice system just does, is not dealing with this in this country. And, and, the the insurance company the insurance rate going up like if, if you think about it if he would have stopped mm. and and um you know just stopped and and been just yeah he was probably drunk so mm. right. the drunk driving laws are why they run because you will go to jail for two days you will get a ten thousand dollar fine you will get your license suspended for drunk driving but if you run, you have time to sober up. They may never mm -hmm. find you. I'm, I'm like a really vigilant guy. So I was, you know, hounding them. I was calling them. Mm -hmm. And so they pretty much had to move forward on the case. But not everybody's like that. And mm -hmm. that's why they run. There's so many hit and runs in this city. There's 20,000 hit and runs every year in this city. Wow. Most of them are property damage, but mm -hmm. a whole lot of them are against cyclists and pedestrians and other drivers. It's, it's, that's just normal here. That's like every year. That's the statistics. Well, <laughs> that's good luck to you. That's all I can <laughs> say. Right. I mean, yeah. And, and like, yeah, I mean, that's why I'm always like so vocal about like, all right, you want us to get in the lane, but it's really scary to get in the lane because there are a lot of crashes and crimes happening. And yes, the bike lane in the door zone is terrible. People get doored and then they get killed because they get thrown into traffic. So it's like, what do you do? Well, there are a whole lot of things that ought to happen. Yeah. And it's it's not an easy battle. Anyway, I definitely want I, to check out Cycling Savvy. And yeah, thanks for your time, John. Yeah, I, I should be on, on my way here. It's it's yeah. much later here than it is where you are. Oh, my God, yeah. it's after 11 p.m. already. I should be yeah. in bed. I would already be in bed. I get up at like 5 in the morning. So right. yeah, the you're, sun's, you're... sun's going down there. It's getting dark yeah anyways thank you john yeah. for being on the show and for My talking and, and uh it was good to hear some things about john forrester and everything okay take care john
The transportation shows I care. Every turn of the pedal cleans the air. Green in the green, I'm saving the planet. Just like my friends Daryl, Sean, Toby, and Janet. No greenhouse gas, a tiny carbon footprint up your ass. I'm on a motherfucking bike. Thanks for listening to this episode of Bike Talk. If you want to hear more, go to kpfk.org, navigate to programs, and choose Bike Talk. On the Bike Talk page, click on the archives link to play or download shows posted in the last four months. Go to biketalk.com and copy or click on the RSS link to subscribe. Our Twitter handle is BikeTalkPFK. On Facebook, we are Bike Talk. You can become friends and join our group. 